Chapter 19 of A Knight of the White Cross by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Escape. Gradually, a greater amount of liberty was given to Gervais. Escape from Tripoli was deemed impossible, especially as he was supposed to be entirely ignorant of Arabic. He was, indeed, scarcely regarded now as a slave by the head mason, and instead of being clad in rags, was dressed like other overseers. He was no longer obliged to walk with the gang to and from the palace, and was at last granted permission to go into the town, and for an hour or two after his work was over, instead of returning direct to the prison. The first time this permission was given to him, he placed himself on the road by which Ben I Ben would leave the town, choosing a quiet spot where the meeting would not be observed. Gervais had for some time taken to staining his face, hands, and legs with walnut juice, beginning with a weak solution, and very gradually increasing the strength until he had reached a shade approximating to that of the lighter-colored portion of the population. The head mason had on one occasion noticed it, and said the sun is darkening your skin gervaise until you might verily pass as a moor gervaise detected an expression of doubt in the tone the officer had spoken to the interpreter and replied at once it is not altogether the sun since i have obtained permission to come to my work alone i have taken to slightly darkening my skin in order to go to and fro unmolested and free from the insults that the boys and beggars hurl at Christians. The master mason nodded approvingly when the answer was translated to him. It is a wise step, he said, for truly the hatred of Christians is very strong among the lower classes, especially since it became known that the galleys that sailed from here nearly two years ago were, with all the fleet from which so much was expected, utterly destroyed. It is well, then, that you should pass unnoticed, for were there a tumult in the street, you might lose your life, and I should lose the best labor overseer I ever had. Thus then, as Gervais walked through the streets on the first occasion of obtaining his liberty, he attracted no attention whatever. When he saw Ben Abin approaching, he stepped out to meet him. The merchant looked in his face, but for a moment failed to recognize him. Then he exclaimed suddenly, it is gervaise ah my son i am indeed rejoiced to see you we have spoken of you so often at home and sorely did my wife and daughters grieve when you were torn from us i did not dare to send any message to you for the sultan pretended great anger against me and used the opportunity to squeeze me hardly but I have frequently made inquiries about you, and was glad indeed to find that even in prison you received promotion. Had it been otherwise, had I found that you were in misery, I would have endeavored, whatever the risk, to aid you to escape. I have indeed nothing to complain of, and was sorry to learn that you had suffered on my account. Have you ever learned how it came about that I was denounced? No, indeed. I would have given much to know, and assuredly the dog, whoever he was, should have been made to suffer. It was Hassan. The villain met me when I was with the gang, 
and boasted that it was he who had sent me there. He had told the news to some official, who had, of course, repeated it to the sultan. Doubtless he concealed his own share in the matter, otherwise he too would, next time he returned here, have to pay for his part in it. I will make him pay more heavily than the sultan would, Ben I Ben said sternly. I will speak to my friends among the merchants, and henceforth no Berber will buy aught from him, and we have hitherto been his best customers. But let us not waste our time speaking of this wretch. How comes it that you are walking freely in the streets of Tripoli? I can see that your face is stained, although you are no longer a Nubian. Gervais told him how it was that he was free to walk in the city after his work was done. I shall now, he went on, be able to carry out any plan of escape that may occur to me, but before I leave, as I shall certainly do ere long, I mean to settle my score with Hassan, and I pray you to send one of the men who were with me in the galley, and whom you took into your employment directly you hear that his ship is in harbor. Do not give him either a note or a message. Bid him simply place himself in the road between the prison gate and the palace, and look fixedly at me as I pass. I shall know it is a signal that Hassan is in the port. Can I aid you in your flight? I will willingly do so. All that I shall need is the garb of a peasant, Gervais said. I might buy one unnoticed, but in the first place I have no money, and in the second, when it is known that I have escaped, the trader might recall the fact that one of the slave overseers had purchased a suit of him. The dress of an Arab would be the best, the merchant said. That I will procure and hold in readiness for you. On the day when I send you word that Hassan is here, I will see that the gate of my garden is unbarred at night, and will place the garments down just behind it. You mean, I suppose, to travel by land? I shall do so for some distance. Were I to steal a boat from the port, it would be missed in the morning, and I be overtaken. I shall therefore go along the coast for some distance, and get a boat at one of the villages, choosing my time when there is a brisk wind, and when I may be able to get well beyond any risk of being overtaken. Now, Ben, I Ben, I will leave you. It were better that we should not meet again, lest some suspicion might fall upon you of having aided in my escape. I cannot thank you too much for all your past kindness, and shall ever bear a grateful remembrance of yourself and your family. Perhaps it were better so, Ben I Ben said, for if the Moors can find any excuse for plundering us, they do so. Have you heard the news that the Sultan of Turkey's expedition for the capture of Rhodes is all but complete? and will assuredly sail before many weeks have passed? I have not heard it, Gervais replied, and trust that I may be in time to bear my share in the defense. However, the blow has been so often threatened that it may be some time before it falls. May Allah bless you, my son, and take you safely back to your friends. Be assured that you shall have notice as soon as I know that Hassan has returned and you shall have the bundle with all that is needful behind my gate. Another two months passed. Gervais looked in vain for Ben Ibn's messenger as he went to and from the palace, and chafed terribly at the delay, when for aught he knew the Turkish fleet might already have brought Mohammed's army to Rhodes. 
At last, as he came back from work, he saw with intense satisfaction one of the men, whose face he recognized, leaning carelessly against the wall. The man gave no sign of recognition, but looked at him earnestly for a minute, and then sauntered off up the street. Gervais went up into the town as usual, walked about until it became quite dark, and then went to the gate that led into the merchant's garden. He found that it was unfastened, and opening it, went in and closed it behind him. As he did so, he started, for a voice close by said, Master, it is I, the messenger whom you saw two hours since. Ben I Ben bade me say that he thought you might require some service, and, knowing that I could be trusted, bade me wait for you here. He thought that you might possibly need a messenger to hasten. The very thing, Gervais exclaimed. I had been puzzling myself in vain as to how I could get speech with him in some quiet place. But with your assistance, that will be easy. But first let me put on this disguise. This was easily effected, even in the dark. A loose flowing robe of white cotton, girt in at the waist, a long burnous with hood to cover the head, a sash with a dagger, and a scimitar completed the disguise. Here is a pouch, the man said with money for your journey, and a long sword, which he says you can hang at your back beneath your burnous. Gervais gave an exclamation of pleasure. By its length and weight, he was sure that the weapon must have been the property of a Christian knight. Shall I carry the message this evening? the man asked. It is early still, and it were best that you should not linger in the city, where there is sure to be a strict search for you in the morning. But perhaps he may recognize your face. It is blackened, my lord, and I am dressed as you were when with Ben I been. Let us settle our plans, then, before we sally out from here. We could not find a safer place for talking. What message, think you, would be the most likely to tempt Hassan to come ashore? You do not know what spoil he has brought. No, besides, if a merchant wanted to buy, he would go on board to inspect Hassan's wares. We must have something to sell. It must be something tempting, and something that must be disposed of secretly. I might tell him that my employer, and I would mention some merchant whose name would carry great weight with him, has received from the interior a large consignment of slaves, among whom are three or four girls, who would fetch high prices in Egypt, and as he believes, they have been captured from a tribe within the limits of the Sultan's territory. He is anxious to get rid of them, and will either dispose of them all cheaply in a lot, or will hand them over to him to take to Egypt to sell, giving him a large commission for carrying them there, and disposing of them. I do not like tempting even an enemy by stories that are untrue, Gervais said doubtfully. I have no scruples that way, the man said with a laugh, and it is I who shall tell the story, and not you. Gervais shook his head. Could you not say that you came from one who owes him a heavy debt and desires to pay him? I do not think that would bring him ashore. Hassan doubtless trades for ready money, and must be well aware that no one here can be greatly in his debt. No, my lord, leave the matter in my hands. I will think of some story before I go on board that will fetch him ashore. But first we must settle where I am to bring him. There are some deserted spots near the wall on the east side of town. I know where you mean, Gervais agreed. Let us go in that direction at once. 
for the sooner you are off the better. In half an hour a spot was fixed on, near some huts that had fallen into ruin. Here Gervais seated himself on a sand heap, while the man hurried away. The moon had just risen, it being but three days since it was at its full. The night was quiet. Sounds of music, laughter, and occasional shouts came faintly from the town. Seated where he was, Gervais could see the port and the ships lying there. Half an hour later he saw a boat row off to one of them, which he had already singled out from its size and general appearance as being that of Hassan. Ten minutes later he saw it returning. At that distance separate figures could not be made out, but it seemed to him that it loomed larger than before, and he thought that certainly one, if not more persons, were returning with his messenger. Presently he heard men approaching, then Hassan's voice came distinctly to his ears. How much farther are you going to take me? Remember I warned you, unless I found that my journey repaid me. It would be bad for you. It is but a few yards farther, my lord. There is my master, the sheik of the Binaikalis, awaiting you. Gervais rose to his feet as Hassan and two of his crew came up. Now, the former said roughly, where have you bestowed these captives you want to sell me? Will you please to follow me into this courtyard? Gervais said. He had, while waiting, reconnoitred the neighborhood, and found an enclosure with the walls still perfect, and had determined to bring Hassan there, in order to prevent him from taking to flight. Hassan entered it unsuspectingly, followed by his two men. Gervais fell back a little, so as to place himself between them and the entrance. Then he threw back the hood of his burnouse. Do you recognize me, Hassan? he said sternly. I am the captive whom you beat almost to death. I told you that some day I would kill you, but even now I am willing to forgive you and to allow you to depart in peace if you will restore the amulet you took from me. The courser gave a howl of rage. Christian dog, he exclaimed. You thought to lead me into a trap, but you have fallen into one yourself. You reckoned that I should come alone, but I suspected there was something hidden behind the story of that black, and so brought two of my crew with me. Upon him, men, cut him down. So saying, he drew his scimitar and sprang furiously upon Gervais. The latter stepped back into the center of the gateway, so as to prevent the men, who had also drawn their swords, passing to attack him from behind. He had undone the clasp of his burnous and allowed it to fall to the ground as he addressed Hassan, and his longsword flashed in the moonlight as the corsair sprang forward. Hassan was a good swordsman, and his ferocious bravery had rendered him one of the most dreaded of the Moorish rovers. Inferior in strength to Gervais, he was as active as a cat, and he leapt back with the spring of a panther, avoiding the sweeping blow with which Gervais had hoped to finish the conflict at once. The latter found himself, therefore, engaged in a desperate fight with his three assailants. So furiously did they attack him that, foot by foot, he was forced to give ground. As he stepped through the gateway, one of the pirates sprang past him, but as he did so, a figure leaped out from behind the wall and plunged a dagger into his back, while at the same moment, by cutting down another pirate, Gervais rid himself of one of his assailants in front. But as he did so, he himself received a severe wound on the left shoulder from Hassan. 
who, before he could again raise his weapon, sprang upon him and tried to hurl him to the ground. Gervais's superior weight saved him from falling, though he staggered back some paces. Then his heel caught against a stone, and he fell, dragging Hassan to the ground with him. Tightly clasped in each other's arms, they rolled over and over. Gervais succeeded at last in getting the upper hand, but as he did so, Hassan twisted his right arm free, snatched the dagger from Gervais's girdle, and struck furiously at him. Gervais, who had half risen to his knees, was unable to avoid the blow, but threw himself forward, his weight partly pinning the corsair's shoulder to the ground, and the blow passed behind him, inflicting but a slight wound in the back. Then, with his right hand, which was now free, he grasped Hassan by the throat with a grip of iron. The pirate struggled convulsively for a moment. Then his left hand released his grasp of his opponent's wrist. A minute later, Gervais rose to his feet. The pirate was dead. Gervais stooped and raised the fallen man's head from the ground, felt for the chain, pulled up Claudia's gauge, and placed it round his own neck. Then he turned to his guide. I have to thank you for my life, he said, holding out his hand to him. It would have gone hard with me if that fellow had attacked me from behind. I had not bargained for three of them. I could not help it, my lord. It was not until Hassan had stepped down into the boat that I knew he was going to take anyone with him. Then he suddenly told two of his men to take their places by him, saying to me as he did so, I know not whether this message is a snare, but mind, if I see any signs of treachery, your life at any rate will pay the forfeit. I knew not what to do, and indeed could do nothing. But knowing my lord's valor, I thought that, even against these odds, you might conquer with such poor aid as I could give you. It was not poor aid at all, Gervais said heartily. Greatly am I indebted to you, and sorry indeed am I that I am unable to reward you now for the great service that you have rendered me. Do not trouble about that, my lord. I am greatly mistaken if I do not find in the sashes of these three villains sufficient to repay me amply for my share in this evening's work. And now, my lord, I pray you to linger not a moment. The gates of the town shut at ten o'clock, and it cannot be long from that hour now. But first, I pray you, let me bind up your shoulder. Your garment is soaked with blood. Fortunately, my burnouse will hide that. But it were certainly best to staunch the blood before I start, for it would be hard for me to get at the wound myself. The man took one of the sashes of the corsairs, tore it into strips, and bandaged the wound. Then with another he made a sling for the arm. As he took off the sashes, a leather bag dropped from each, and there was a chink of metal. He placed them in his girdle, saying, I shall have time to count them when I get back. Gervais sheathed his sword and put on the burnous, pulling the hood well over his head. Then, with a few more words of thanks, started for the gate leaving the man to search Hassan's girdle. The gate was a quarter of a mile distant. Gervais passed through with the usual Arabic salutation to the sentry, and with difficulty repressed a shout of exultation as he left Tripoli behind him. Following the coast road, he walked till daylight. Then he left it and lay down among the sand hills for five or six hours. He calculated that no pursuit would be begun until midday, his absence was not likely to be noticed until the gangs began work in the morning. 
when an alarm would be given the sentries at the gates on the previous evening would be questioned and when it was found that no one answering to his description had passed out before these were closed there would be a rigid search throughout the city and port the vessels would all be examined and the boatmen questioned as to whether any craft was missing not until the search proved absolutely fruitless would it be seriously suspected that he had either by passing through the gates in disguise or by scaling the walls made for the interior none knew that he could speak arabic and it would be so hopeless an undertaking for any one unacquainted with the language to traverse the country without being detected that the moors would be slow to believe that he had embarked upon such adventure however when all search for him in the town and in the vessels in the port proved fruitless doubtless mounted men would be dispatched in all directions some would take the coast roads while others would ride into the interior to warn the head men of the villages to be on the lookout for an escaped slave after a sleep of five hours gervais pursued his journey he had walked for eight hours and calculated that he must be fully thirty miles from tripoli and that not until evening would searchers overtake him after walking four miles he came to a large village there he purchased a bag of dates sat down on a stone bench by the roadside to eat them and entered into conversation with two or three moors who sauntered up to these he represented that he belonged to a party of his tribe who had encamped for the day at a short distance from the village in order to rest their horses before riding into tripoli whither they were proceeding to exchange skins of animals taken in the chase and some young horses for cotton clothes knives and other articles of barter with the tribes beyond them after quenching his thirst at a well in front of the mosque he retraced his steps until beyond the village then struck out into the country made a detour came down into the road again and continued his journey eastward he walked until nightfall and then again lay down he was now fully fifty miles from tripoli and hoped that he was beyond the point which horsemen from that point would think of pursuing their search it was likely that they would not have gone beyond the village at which he had halted on the previous day for when they learned from the inhabitants that no stranger save an arab had entered it they would content themselves with warning the head man to be on the watch for any stranger unable to speak their tongue and would not consider it necessary to push their steps further for four days gervais continued his journey at each village through which he passed he added to his stock of dates until he had as many as he could carry under his burnous without attracting observation he also purchased a large water-bottle which he slung round his neck at this time the sea lay to his left like a sheet of glass and he knew that until a change of weather occurred it was useless for him to attempt to escape by boat on the fifth day there were signs of a change he saw a dark line far out at sea it came across the water rapidly and presently a gentle breeze began to blow from the northwest it gradually increased in strength and when in the afternoon he stopped at a village the waves were breaking upon the shore after repeating his usual story he sauntered down to the water's edge there were several boats hauled up and a hundred yards out two or three larger craft were lying at anchor he entered into conversation with some of the fishermen and his questions as to the boats led them to believe him altogether ignorant of the sea the craft were they told him used sometimes for fishing 
but they often made voyages to towns along the coast with dates and other produce each boat carried a single short mast to the top of which was attached a long tapering spar on which the sail was furled gervais knew that these small feluccas were generally fast sailors and fair sea boats and resolved to seize one of them trusting that when once the sail was shaken out he would be able to manage it single-handed accustomed to boats he picked out that which he thought would be the fastest and then walked away for half a mile and lay down to sleep until the village was silent for the night he had with him some oaten cakes he had bought there a string of fish he had purchased from the boatmen and with these and the dates he thought he could manage four or five days at least as to water he could only hope that he should find a supply on board the boat when he judged it to be about ten o'clock he went down to the shore again took off his clothes and made them into a bundle then wading out into the water to within fifty yards of the felucca swam off to it towing the bundle behind him he had no difficulty in climbing on board and after dressing himself in the clothes he had worn at tripoli and had kept on beneath the arab attire he pulled the head rope until the craft was nearly over the anchor he then loosened the line that brailed up the sail got the stone that served as an anchor on board hauled the sheet aft and took his place at the tiller the wind had dropped a good deal with the sun but there was still sufficient air to send the light craft fast through the water he steered out for a time and then when he thought himself a good mile from the shore headed east by the appearance of the water as it glanced past from five to six miles an hour and when the sun rose at five o'clock believed that he was nearly forty miles on his way he now fastened the tiller with a rope and proceeded to overhaul the craft it was decked over forward only and he crept into the cabin which was little more than three feet high the first thing his eye lit on was a bulky object hanging against the side and covered with a thick black blanket of arab manufacture lifting this he saw as he expected that the object beneath it was a large water-skin well filled the blanket had evidently been placed over it to keep it cool when the sun streamed down on the deck above it there was also a large bag of dates and another of flat cakes and he guessed that these had all been put on board the evening before in readiness for a start in the morning this relieved him of his chief anxiety for he had been unable to think of any plan for replenishing his supply or to concoct a likely tale that were he obliged to go on shore would account for his being alone in a craft of that size the wind increased again after sunrise and being unable to reef the sail single-handed he managed partially to brail it up all day the craft flew along with the wind on the quarter making six or seven miles an hour and he felt that by morning he would be well beyond pursuit on the run he passed several craft engaged in fishing but these gave him no uneasiness he had in the morning with some old sails he found constructed three rough imitations of human figures one with the arab dress and another with the burnous and had placed them against the bulwarks so that at a short distance it would appear that there were three men on board feeling confident that the deception would not be noticed he kept his course without swerving and passed some of the fishing boats within hailing distance waving his hand and shouting the usual arab salutation to their crews during the day he contented himself with eating some dates and an oatmeal cake or two but at sunset he added to this two or three fish that he had split open and hung up to dry in the sun and wind 
there was charcoal on board and a flat stone served as a hearth in the bottom of the boat but he had no means of lighting a fire for this the fishermen would have brought off when they came on board in the morning after he had finished his meal and taken his place again at the tiller he altered his course hitherto he had been steering to the south of east following the line of coast but he now saw before him the projecting promontory of cape meserata which marks the western entrance of the great gulf of sidra and he now directed his course two points north of east so as to strike the opposite promontory known as grena more than a hundred miles away the wind fell much lighter and he shook out the sail to its full extent all night he kept at his post but finding the wind perfectly steady he lashed the tiller so as to keep the boat's head in the direction in which he was steering and dozed for some hours waking up occasionally to assure himself that she was keeping her course at sunrise he indulged in a wash in sea-water and felt freshened and revived he now kept a sharp lookout for distant sails for he was out of the ordinary course a coaster would take and would have attracted the attention of any courser coming out from the land the sea however remained clear of ships all day the felucca made rapid progress for although the wind freshened gervaise did not lessen sail as before being now accustomed to the boat and confident of her powers as soon as the wind died away again after sunset he lay down for a good sleep feeling this was an absolute necessity and knowing that before morning he should be obliged to keep a sharp lookout for land he slept longer than he intended for the day was breaking when he opened his eyes he sprang to his feet and saw the land stretching ahead of him at a distance as he thought of some fifteen miles and at once put the helm down and bore more to the north he judged from what he had heard on the coast that he must be nearly off cape tejones behind which lies the town of bengasi and was confirmed in the belief on finding half an hour later that the coast which had run nearly north and south trended sharply away to the northeast all day long he kept about the same distance from the land and at night instead of keeping on his course brailed up the sail entirely and allowed the vessel to drift as he knew that before morning he should lose the coast if he continued as he was going he slept without moving until daylight and then saw to his satisfaction by means of landmarks he had noticed the evening before that the boat had drifted but a few miles during the night as the day went on he saw that the coastline was now east and west and felt that he must be off the most northerly point of the promontory he accordingly laid his course to the northeast which would take him close to cape saloman the most easterly point of crete and from two hundred and fifty to three hundred miles distance for twenty-four hours he sailed quietly on the wind dropping lighter and lighter then it suddenly died out altogether for some hours there was not a breath to stir the surface of the water and the heat was stifling gervais slept for some time when he awoke the same stillness reigned but there was a change in the appearance of the sky its brightness was dulled by a faint mist while although the sea was of a glassy smoothness there was an imperceptible swell that caused the felucca to sway uneasily gervais had sufficient experience of the levant to know that these signs were ominous of a change and he at once set to work to prepare for it 
although he saw that it would be difficult for him unaided to hoist the long spar back into its place he decided to lower it this was not difficult as its weight brought it down onto the deck as soon as he slackened the halyards he unhooked it from the block and then lashed the sail securely to it when he had done this he looked round a bank of dark clouds lay across the horizon to the northwest and in a short time he could see that this was rising rapidly before taking down the spar and sail he had deliberated as to whether it would be better to run before the coming gale or to lie to and had decided on the latter alternative as were it to continue to blow long he might be driven on to the egyptian coast moreover the felucca's bow was much higher out of the water than the stern and he thought that she would ride over the waves with greater safety than she would did they sweep down upon her stern he had heard that the greeks when caught in a sudden gale in small boats often lashed the oars together threw them overboard with a rope attached and rowed to them safely through a sea that would otherwise have overwhelmed them after much consideration as to what had best be done he took the anchor rope which was some sixty yards in length fastened one end to each end of the spar and then lashed the middle of the rope to the bow of the felucca then using an oar as a lever he with great labor managed to launch the spar over the bow with the sail still attached to it when he had completed this he looked round at the state of the weather the clouds had risen so fast that their edge was nearly overhead spanning the sky like a great arch ahead of him it seemed almost as black as night he had not been out in many of the gales that at times sweep the eastern waters of the mediterranean with terrible violence but had seen enough of them to know that it was no ordinary one that he was about to encounter he looked over the bow the spar at present was lying in contact with the stem with an oar he pushed it across so as to be at right angles with the craft and then there being nothing else to do sat down and waited for the storm to burst in a short time he heard a dull moaning sound a puff of wind struck the boat but in a few seconds died out it was sufficient to give the light craft stern away and she drifted backwards the rope tightening until the spar lay across her bows some twenty yards away the dull moaning had grown louder and now ahead of him he saw a white line it approached with extraordinary rapidity knowing the fury with which it would burst upon him he leapt down and stood at the entrance to the cabin with his head just above the deck with a deafening roar the wind struck the boat which staggered as if she had on her full course struck on a rock while a shower of spray flew over her half blinded and deafened gervais crawled into the cabin closed the door and lay down there whatever happened there was nothing he could do he was soon conscious that the spar and sail were doing their work for the boat still lay head to wind the noise overhead and around was deafening above the howl of the wind could be heard the creaking of the timbers and the boat seemed to shiver as each fresh gust struck her in half an hour he looked out again there was as yet but little sea the force of the wind seemed to flatten the water and the instant a wave lifted its head it was cut off as if by a knife and carried away in spray the boat herself was moving rapidly through the water dragging the spar behind her and gervais almost trembled at the thought of the speed at which she would have flown along had it not been for the restraint of the floating anchor gradually the sea got up but the light craft rode easily over it 
and Gervais, after commending his safety to God, lay down and was soon fast asleep. In spite of the motion of the vessel, he slept soundly for many hours. When he awoke, he opened the cabin door and looked out. A tremendous sea was running, but he thought the wind, although so strong that he could scarcely lift his head above the shelter of the bulwark, was less violent than it had been when it first broke upon him. He saw to his satisfaction that the felucca breasted the waves lightly, and that although enveloped in spray, she took no green water over the bows. The spar and sail acted not only as a floating anchor, but as a breakwater, and the white-crested waves, which came on as if they would break upon the boat, seemed robbed of half their violence by the obstruction to their course, and passed under the felucca without breaking. For forty-eight hours the gale continued. At the end of that time it ceased almost as suddenly as it had begun. The sun shone brightly out. The clouds cleared entirely away. It was some hours before the sea went down sufficiently for Gervais to attempt to get the spar on deck again. It was a heavy task, taxing his strength to the utmost. But after a deal of labor it was got on board, and then raised to its position at the masthead. The sail was shaken out and the felucca again put on her course. End of chapter 19 Read by Peter Strong in Cartagena, Columbia On January 30th, 2019